Welcome to episode two of Your Children's Legacy Podcast. I'm your host, David Lilly, and we're going to take an appropriate snapshot of the world's biggest challenge. But before we do, let me say a little bit more about this podcast. Well, with a title like Your Children's Legacy, you could be forgiven for thinking this podcast is about wills and estate planning, the subject of what physical items and monetary wealth you might build up and leave to your children and extended family after you've passed away. But this podcast is not about a legacy of money and possessions. It's about something much more important than that. This is a podcast about the legacy of continued human existence on the only planet within the solar system that's capable of supporting human life. And of course, that is the planet we're on now, planet Earth. There is no planet B. If you really love your children and grandchildren, I mean really love them, this is not the type of podcast or a subject you'll want to ignore. In fact, this is not a subject that any family-loving or environment-respecting person could remotely comprehend ignoring. When furnished with accurate knowledge about climate change, those who really love their children will want to act immediately. They'll want to behave in a way that protects the future interests of their bloodline for decades to come. As I consider what all of us can do, I feel sure that being able to join an army of people who want to protect planet Earth for future generations is all about becoming carbon literate. It's about understanding what climate change is, what's causing it, and most importantly, what we can do about it. And so the objectives of this first main podcast and the ongoing series are threefold. Number one, we want to provide a basic but solid explanation surrounding what climate change is. Number two, we want to help you become carbon literate. We feel if you've acquired the knowledge and understanding, you'll be equipped to make some contribution, even if it's only a modest one, to this important crusade. And number three, to motivate you to want to desire to take some physical action and to ensure you positively contribute towards reducing your own carbon footprint. Now, this specific podcast, episode two, because the first one was just a basic introduction, is the first meaningful broadcast from this channel. And it provides what I call a situation analysis, perhaps described as a helicopter elevated view of the delicate predicament we find ourselves in with planet Earth, and a glimpse of some of the action we all need to take to avoid catastrophic consequences. Future podcasts will zoom into more detail on the subjects that today we just scratched the surface of in this episode. So please do make a commitment today. Please make time for this podcast in your life. Stay with me as I explain what climate change is, the impact it's having on our world, and begin to outline some of the contributions you can make to help your family and future generations. Remember, this is your children's legacy we're talking about. And the good news is that if we make a concerted effort and adopt new habits to contribute towards the effort to care for our planet, we can make an impact that sees improvements being made. We can eventually start to address climate change. The subject of climate change seems simple on the surface, but there actually are many layers of complexity that go with it. As we compare the subject to that of the COVID-19 pandemic that we're all enduring now, and the attempts to create vaccinations to survive the massive economic impact and to plan for the new normal, some of us may feel fatigued by this subject. Do we really need what some may perceive as negative stuff in our life right now? I think it's important to address that point. Many scientists quite rightly label climate change 
as the issue that will dominate and challenge our world in the years ahead. And as we continue with that COVID-19 and climate change comparison, an important point to note is that whilst vaccines can often be created for certain viruses, as they have been done in the case of the COVID-19 virus, you cannot create a vaccine to reverse the damage that's been done to our planet. Concerted action needs to be taken now if we're to ensure that the planet we leave behind for our children, grandchildren and future generations in centuries ahead, our own bloodlines effectively, do not involve unthinkable and frightening planet Earth conditions. One of the big questions some people ask about climate change is presented with the question, is it real? Well, the answer to that question is a resounding yes, and all of the leading scientists agree on that point. There are very few posing views to the fact that climate change is real. Now, in future episodes of Your Children's Legacy, we'll focus more on this detailed evidence, but for now, the point of evidence that I'm about to share I hope will truly resonate with and convince most people that climate change is real. So what is that piece of evidence? Well, since the mid-1800s, scientists have known that CO2 is one of the main greenhouse gases of importance to the Earth's energy balance. Scientists have drilled down through layers of ice that formed back in the year 1800. Now, within this ice from all those years ago are tiny pockets of trapped air, that can be examined in a laboratory. Direct measurements of CO2 in the atmosphere and in air trapped in the ice show that atmospheric CO2 increased by more than 40% from 1800 to the year 2019. As a follow-on, measurements of different forms of carbon reveal that this increase is due to the activities of us human beings. Other greenhouse gases, notably methane and nitrous oxide, are also increasing as a consequence of human activities. The observed global surface temperature rise since the year 1900 is consistent with detailed calculations of the impacts of the observed increase in atmospheric greenhouse gases and other human-induced changes on Earth's energy balance. In short, whilst there is much more evidence we will present for you to consider, this incredible 40% increase in CO2 in the last 120 years has created what I call a tipping point. And climate change is no longer just a nightmare on the horizon that might be coming, that might happen. Climate change is happening right now. We're seeing evidence of it right now, and we must act to address and minimise this negative impact. So on the subject of action, what actions are we seeing being taken by the many governments around the world? Well, most countries in the world contributed to the Paris Agreement in the year 2015. The Paris Agreement, which is sometimes referred to as COP21, Conference of the Parties, is a landmark environmental mission statement that was formally adopted by 196 countries. Each country signed on to a single plan that aims to keep global warming to well below 2 degrees centigrade or even 1.5 degrees centigrade if that's possible. The agreement includes commitments from all of the major companies who are emitting carbon. Each country needs to mobilise a plan to cut their climate-altering pollution by the year 2025, just four years from now, and then not only to cut that pollution, but to sustain those reduced emission levels. So, now we know what action is taking place, let's get a little into the more detail behind what is influencing climate change. As already explained in the ice drilling exercise, one of the key aspects that influence climate change are carbon dioxide emissions. The term carbon dioxide is often abbreviated to CO2 emissions. 
This is the residue or emissions that stem from the burning of fossil fuels and the manufacture of cement. They include carbon dioxide produced during consumption of solid, liquid and gas fuels, as well as gas flaring. Fossil fuels are items such as coal, natural gas, derived gas, crude oil and petroleum products. Carbon dioxide has become known as a greenhouse gas and traps heat in the atmosphere. But with carbon dioxide, there is a paradox at play. Because without carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases, planet Earth would be a frozen world. We actually need some carbon dioxide. The problem is, since the start of the Industrial Revolution about 150 years ago, us human beings have burned so much fuel and released so much carbon dioxide into the air that the global climate has risen over 1.5 degree Fahrenheit. According to data from those ice cores, the atmosphere has not held this much carbon for at least 420,000 years. You heard that correct, 420,000 years. And the recent increase in the amounts of greenhouse gases, such as carbon dioxide, is having a significant impact on the warming of our planet. The planet is warming from North Pole to South Pole. Since 1906, the global average surface temperature has increased by more than 1.6 degrees Fahrenheit, or 0.9 degrees Celsius, and even more in sensitive polar regions. And the impacts of rising temperatures aren't waiting in anticipation of some futuristic vision thousands of years from now. The effects of global warming are appearing and are clearly visible and evident right now. The extra heat is melting glaciers and sea ice, shifting precipitation patterns and setting animals on the move. If you want to take a moment to Google or go on YouTube and search for the Greenland documentary, that's absolutely worth watching because you'll see video evidence that the ice is melting. Climate change encapsulates not only rising average temperatures, but also extreme weather events. This is affecting animal populations and their essential habitats, rising seas and a range of other impacts. All of these changes are emerging as human beings and we allegedly think of ourselves as the most intelligent beings on the planet, continue to add those heat-trapping greenhouse gases to the atmosphere. So the word climate change is often associated with the term global warming. Greenhouse gases such as carbon dioxide absorb heat emitted from the Earth's surface. Increases in the atmospheric concentrations of these gases cause Earth to warm up, trapping more of the heat. Human activities as we've touched on, especially the burning of fossil fuels since the start of the Industrial Revolution, have increased atmospheric CO2 concentrations by the 40% that we've already talked about. Now, scientists have evidenced and documented some of the impacts of climate change. Let's take a slightly deeper look at this. Ice is melting worldwide, especially at the Earth's poles. This includes mountain glaciers, ice sheets covering the West Antarctica and Greenland, and Arctic sea ice. And anyone who is sceptical and doubts these points should do as I mentioned a few minutes ago. Go and find the documentary about Greenland and take a look at that. In Montana's Glacier National Park, the number of glaciers has declined to fewer than 30. As a measurement, in the year 1910, there were more than 150. A lot of this melting ice contributes to sea level rise. Global sea levels are rising 0.13 inches, 3.2 millimetres as a comparison a year, and the rising is occurring at a faster rate in recent years. As we've already mentioned, rising temperatures are affecting wildlife and their habitats. Vanishing ice has challenged species such as the Adelie penguin in Antarctica, 
where some populations on the Western Peninsula have collapsed by a staggering 90% or more. As temperatures change, many species of animals are on the move. As an example, some butterflies, foxes and alpine plants have migrated farther north or to higher, cooler areas. Rain and snowfall has increased across the globe on average, yet to add to the confusion, some regions are experiencing severe drought, increasing the risk of wildfires, lost crops and drinking water shortages. The North Yorkshire town of Thirsk recently recorded a winter temperature of minus 7.5 degrees, and some people may choose to look at that in isolation and decide that global warming can't be real. How can you record record low temperatures if the planet's warming up? Well, to focus on that, one small incident would be highly inappropriate. At the opposite end of animal impact, there are some species, including mosquitoes, ticks, jellyfish and crop pests that are thriving. A huge increase in bark beetles that feed on spruce and pine trees, for example, have devastated millions of forest acres in the United States. If warming continues, some of the other effects that are likely to take place later this century are as follows. Sea levels are expected to rise between 10 and 32 inches, or higher by the end of the century. To provide some more substance and facts to support the claims that the rate of ice sheets melting is accelerating, between 1992 and 2017, Antarctica shed a staggering 3 trillion tonnes of ice. It increased sea levels by three-tenths of an inch. But worryingly, 40% of that has occurred during the last five years, from 2012 to 2017. Looking at this situation from another perspective, Antarctic melting has tripled since the year 2007. If it continues at the same rate, it will increase sea levels by another 6 inches, or 15 centimetres, by the time the year 2100 arrives. Now, Andrew Shepard, who is a professor of Earth Observation at the University of Leeds, said that this translates into flooding Brooklyn in the US around 20 times a year. Even more recently, an additional concern has been added. Between the years 2010 and 2016, the Antarctic grounding line has receded 600 feet per year. The grounding line is the last place where ice melts bedrock. A receding line means warmer ocean water is melting the underside of the glacier, while a warmer air temperature attacks the top layers. This serves to create a river under the glaciers, aiding the movement of melted ice more quickly into the ocean. Now let's take a look at how scientists know that sea levels are rising. Well, scientists accurately measure global sea level increases in three ways. Since 1992, NASA has collected data from satellites. NASA also uses tide gauges in many parts of the world to get a global average. The gauges block out the impact of waves and tides to get an accurate reading. The third method is reviewing rock formations. Scientists use this method to determine the sea levels of millions of years ago. They look for fossils of ocean organisms, sedimentary deposits and even the action of waves. The rising sea level is affecting coastal areas all over the world. It increases flooding, worsens hurricane damage and leaches salt water into tidal areas. It increases migration, weakens military preparedness and threatens historical sites. Local governments are spending billions to defend against the effects of rising sea levels. A great example of this is in the Netherlands. The Netherlands spends 1 billion euros every year maintaining large-scale flood defences. In a country where 40% of the land is below sea level 
and 60% of the countries at risk from floods, they have little choice but to spend that amount of money. And despite that, most experts know that even with such huge investment, it will be impossible to protect parts of the Netherlands from rising sea levels in future years. Flooding will affect eight of the world's largest coastal cities. It will impact 40% of Americans who live in coastal counties. Floods have hit the US coastal towns three to nine times more often than they did 50 years ago. As an example, from 2005 to 2017, sea level rises cost 8,000 coastal states a sum of $14.1 billion. Another study showed that the number of coastal flood days in the US locations has increased dramatically. They flooded 2.1 days a year between the years 1956 and 1960, and that's exploded to 11.8 days annually between the years 2006 and 2010. Between the years 1978 and 2015, at least 30,000 homes flooded multiple times. The federal government bought out fewer than 9% and only paid 75% of the home's value. Federal disaster funds help people rebuild their homes in the same spot. In 2012, Congress phased out subsidies for federal flood insurance, and this makes it too expensive for many homeowners. In Miami, Florida, streets flood during high tide. The city of Miami Beach launched a five-year, 400 million public works program. It's raising roads, installing pumps, and redoing sewer connections. By the year 2048, the residents of 64,000 Florida homes will have to deal with what is described as chronic flooding. In Louisiana, rising sea levels are flooding the Mississippi Delta. Louisiana is losing one acre an hour of wetlands. These areas nourish fisheries and protect New Orleans from hurricanes. They also absorb the greenhouse gases that cause global warming. Rising sea levels combined with sinking land will flood many areas around San Francisco by the year 2100. The land is sinking because of groundwater pumping. Parts of the airport, as well as large sections of Union City, Foster City and Treasure Island, would be underwater. San Diego County, California, is building the largest seawater desalination plant in the Western Hemisphere. The plant will cost a billion dollars. Rising sea levels worsen damage from hurricanes. The 17 most destructive UK storms in history occurred after the year 2000, and three of them in the year 2017. Their damage cost the economy $700 billion. About 1.2 million Americans live in coastal areas at risk of substantial damage from hurricanes. Most of this densely populated area lies less than 10 feet above sea level, according to the National Hurricane Centre. A 23-foot storm surge would flood 67% of the U.S. interstates, including 57% of arterial highways. It would cover almost half the rail miles, 29 airports and almost all ports in the Gulf Coast area. Salt water leaches into underground aquifers and the soil. It disrupts the chemical balance of estuaries, destroying oyster beds and bird habitats. Increased salinity in Bangladesh, Vietnam and other Asian coastal countries threatens rice production. In Egypt, up to 12.5 miles inland from the shoreline have become saline, threatening billions of dollars in farming losses. Migration is increased as residents flee from flooding coastal areas. Low-lying islands, nations such as the Maldives and Seychelles, will soon be underwater. 
By the year 2050, it's predicted that 17% of Bangladesh will be flooded, displacing 18 million people. 40% of Jakarta, Indonesia, homes to 30 million people, lies below sea level. Tourism and historical sites are threatened. On Easter Island, the famous Moe statues will be destroyed if the sea rises six feet. The Marshall Islands are disappearing already. They are less than six feet above sea level, but changing sea winds have raised sea levels a foot over the past 30 years. The nation's 70,000 residents will probably emigrate to the United States thanks to a 1986 agreement. So what are the causes behind the rising seas? Global warming causes the sea levels to rise in two ways. Firstly, as the ocean warms, it takes up more space, and that alone has caused half of the sea level rise in the past century. Sea level rising will still continue for centuries, even if warming was capped at 1.5 degrees centigrade above pre-industrial levels, prescribed in the lower limit of the Paris Agreement. Using satellite maps overlaid with population growth, World Bank researchers pinpointed coastal areas with low elevation and assessed the probable consequences of continued sea level rise for 84 developing countries. Hurricanes and other storms are likely to become stronger. Paradox of floods and droughts will become more common. Large parts of the US will be exposed to higher risk of decades-long mega droughts. By the year 2100, less fresh water will be available because glacier stores about three-quarters of the world's fresh water. Some diseases will spread, such as mosquito-borne malaria and the 2016 resurgence of the Zika virus. Ecosystems will continue to change. Some species will move further north or become more successful. Others, such as polar bears, won't be able to adapt and could become extinct. I could go on and on with the evidence that's presented from multiple sources, but for now let's pause there and hope that what I've shared is enough for people to want to act. In future episodes, we'll drill down into many of the areas where you can take action. So the big question is, can we address the challenges created by climate change? Well, the first good news that I've shared today is the answer is a resounding yes. But it has a caveat. Whilst we cannot stop global warming overnight, or even over the next several decades, we can work together to slow the rate and limit the amount of global warming by reducing human emissions of the heat-trapping gases we discussed earlier. If all human emissions of heat-trapping gases were to immediately stop today, the Earth's temperature would, would continue to rise for a few decades as ocean currents bring excess heat stored in the deep ocean back to the surface. Once this excess heat radiated out to space, Earth's temperature would eventually begin to stabilise. Let's focus the closing part of this first podcast on the more positive things, some of the things that you can think about doing to help and to make your contribution towards reducing carbon output, and to protect your children's legacy. So I'm going to run through a dozen areas, a dozen things that you could do. So number one, you could switch to 100% green power. Throughout the world, the use of energy represents by far the largest source of greenhouse gas emissions created by human activity. Around two-thirds of global greenhouse gas emissions are linked to burning fossil fuels, for energy that's used for heating, electricity, transport and industry. And in Europe, energy production and use, including the energy used in transport, accounts for some 80% of the EU's greenhouse gas emissions. Switching to renewables has multiple positive impacts. By converting to green electricity, you support the phase-out of coal. You do your bit to accelerate the move to renewable sources – 
and directly reduce CO2 emissions. Now, if you're thinking about how you might be able to switch to green power, do your own search in your own Google research. But Octopus Energy in the UK, for example, are developing a credible name as a green energy supplier. Action number two you can take is to actually save energy. This involves investing some time in how you can save energy at home. There are some very basic, simple suggestions. One of them is don't leave the heating on when you're not in. Millions of people do. They're not in the house for eight hours in the day and they think, oh, I'll keep the house aired. And so they leave the heating on all day instead of setting it to come on an hour before they get home. You're just wasting energy, causing a problem and costing yourself money. Turn off lights when they're not needed. Shower only for as long as you need to get clean. Some people stay in the shower for 30 minutes when really all you need is six or seven to get clean. Rationalize the type of lighting that you have around your home. Look at the LED options that are out there. And if you haven't got it already, consider solar power on your roof. That's something that I'm actually considering now, whether to have solar power on the roof or in part of the garden. But in terms of how to save energy, we will explore this in more detail with a dedicated episode of the Your Children's Legacy podcast in the future. The third interesting area is to revisit your diet. Now, in the European Union, meat and dairy production is estimated to be responsible for 12 to 17% of total greenhouse gas emissions, while throughout the world, the global livestock industry produces more greenhouse gas emissions than all cars, planes, trains and ships combined. That's staggering, isn't it? This doesn't mean that everyone has to become a vegetarian. Even a small shift in diet with a reduction in meat and dairy products and the consumption of more plant-based foods instead could reduce the pressure that agriculture places on the environment. But there are many other factors at play when you're looking at food. So, for example, if you are eating imported vegetables that have been on an aeroplane or have been transported to the UK on a ship and that's used lots of gasoline, then even though you're eating something healthier, it's not necessarily helping reducing carbon. So you have to think in a lot of detail, not only about what you're eating, but where it's being sourced from. When buying fruits and vegetables, try to buy organic wherever the options and the price will allow you. Organic foods are usually not only healthier, but they typically contain fewer harmful substances like pesticides and fertilizers. So growing them also protects the environment and the climate. If you can, you should look to support local organic farmers by signing up to receive their veggie boxes or from people who grow food nearby. It's easy enough nowadays to join Facebook groups and to Google to find organizations close to yourself that are doing stuff like that. Now, to try and put the impact of food into perspective, I was shocked when I used a carbon food calculator from the BBC, and I'll provide a link to this calculator in the show notes of this podcast, and I learned about certain food habits. Now, I'll give you just one example. I like to drink decaffeinated oat milk coffee. I don't barely ever drink milk. Almost always when I'm taking a coffee out, I will choose oat milk if it's on the menu. So I decided to put oat milk into the BBC's carbon food calculator. And I tick the option that says I have two glasses of 200ml serving of oat milk a day. And the conclusion that the BBC calculator said was that over an entire year, my consumption of oat milk is contributing 131 kilograms to greenhouse gas emissions. That's the equivalent of driving a regular petrol car 335 miles which is 540 kilometres, 
or it's the same as heating the average UK home for 20 days in a year. And my consumption of oat milk uses 7,000 litres of water, which is equal to 108 showers lasting eight minutes. Wow. Just staggering. So when you go and use that calculator, and there are many other carbon food calculators out there and many other carbon food calculator apps, which we'll begin to share on future episodes, you'll be staggered by the choices that you're making and the impact. I would have never thought for one moment that something as simple as me drinking oat milk would be having that impact. But the good news is that oat milk is lower on the scale than some of the other milks that I could be drinking. So there's a lot of positive benefit to be gained from studying what we eat and looking at the ingredients that can save the planet. Action number four is to avoid plastic wherever you can. Now this is really difficult, isn't it? So from a practical perspective, plastic has been a very useful substance and it's present in pretty much every aspect of our life. However, one of the great things about plastic, which is its durability of the material, and that's one of the features that make it so popular and so versatile, also brings a dramatic disadvantage. And the key one is that we struggle to dispose of plastic. Plastic has found its way pretty much everywhere, on streets, in rivers, on the beach, in the sea, in cosmetics, in wastewater, in our food, in our clothing and even in the air that we breathe. And there's also a close connection between climate change and our massive global plastic problem. Almost every plastic is produced from fossil fuels, and in every single phase of its life cycle, plastic emits greenhouse gases. In future episodes, we'll take a look at sensible ways that you might be able to cut down on your use of plastic in your life. Area number five is that you could choose to share more. Now again, we'll have a dedicated podcast on this one in future episodes of Your Children's Legacy, but you might want to start now by making a list of the items that you really need in your life versus the items that you want. You know, I've been as guilty as everybody over the years for buying things that I think I need, but actually I want them more, and some of these items sit in a cupboard never used which is criminal and i've now got to revisit that habit that i've gotten into seeing something attracted by a great piece of marketing convinced that i need to have that item and actually i barely use some of the items that i order so i've got to address that myself needs and wants vary very differently i think if you sat and invested some time into making a list of the items that you feel you really need in your life versus the items that you've actually got you'll be shocked If we own less and we use things collectively, we need to produce fewer items and that saves on resources. Sharing cars, exchanging clothes, lending and borrowing tools. There are multiple different possibilities for collective consumption as items are being used by millions of people worldwide. Now this idea of sharing would need a paradigm shifting attitude because so many people are conditioned not to share. So many people live myopic life. It's just the way that things have evolved, certainly here in the UK. But it is possible to get involved in the sharing economy. And on future episodes of the podcast, we'll also look at that. Look at the movements that are out there around the sharing economy. That'll be a fascinating podcast. And we'll get guests on that are involved in things like that to talk about. Area number six is you could reduce your digital usage to what is needed. Now, again, this is a real challenge given that billions of people are addicted to social media and their smartphones. So this is a tough one, and it's going to be a tough one for me because I consume lots of time, use lots of time searching and researching things on the internet, and the nature of my work means that I, uh, I do spend many hours of a day 
sat at a desk and a PC like many of us do. And then when work ends, because of the lockdown forced by COVID-19, much of socialising with friends and family is actually done on social media. The reality, however, is every search career we type, every email we send or receive, and every song we stream actually causes CO2 emissions. Why? Because energy is needed for all the data we're producing, and we produce the requirement for a lot of it. Incredibly, by the year 2018, the use of digital technologies had overtaken even the aviation industry in terms of CO2 emissions. And the number one power use in the digital world is streaming video services. As an example, Netflix currently consumes 15% of the world's internet bandwidth. So if you're a fan of a certain playlist or show on Netflix, maybe you could try downloading them onto your phone rather than streaming them anew each time you go back to them. So if you're repeatedly watching things, don't repeatedly do so on a stream. Download them to the Netflix app on your phone and watch them. Now, there is a green search engine out there known as Acosia, and what they do is they plant trees, so they're offsetting their carbon impact. Generally, it's not helpful to purchase electronic devices that you don't need, and at a basic level, start to delete emails from your email accounts because they are taking up bandwidth that needs to be fueled. Item number seven, I'm going to bundle the use of cars and flying together. It's all about asking yourself the question, do you really need to take that flight or drive to that meeting? I think what we've learned with COVID-19 is that it has been possible to move lots of meetings to video meetings using free systems that are out there now. Many of them uh, have an element of free, including Zoom, which is the one that I probably use the most. Microsoft Teams is another. Google Meet is another. Could the physical meeting that you think you need be replaced with a video call? And we all know the world's been forced to do that and the good aspect, the positive aspect of COVID-19 is that I think once normality returns and the vaccine started to work, we'll see less people jumping on planes and going to meetings just for the sake of it. The airline and transportation industry is a massive contributor to emissions and climate change. So in future episodes, we will explore the cost and the feasibility of electric cars. We'll also look at the subject of electric aeroplanes and would that ever be possible? With the weight of batteries, it ain't an easy one, but technology is advancing. So we'll look at that. That is another massive massive subject for us to explore on another podcast. Action number eight is make sustainable investments. So why not Google the term sustainable banks and sustainable investments and put your money to work in areas that help climate change? There are some investments out there that are strong yielding that can help with climate change. Speak to your independent financial advisor, your IFA, about climate change investment options. And again, this is something we'll cover more of in future episodes. We'll have an independent financial advisor on here to talk about the various different sustainable investment options that are out there. Another area is investment in property. There is growing acceptance that today's house building methods are not planet friendly. And this is crazy. This is almost criminal that we've carried on building houses in the old-fashioned way when we know there is a more cost-effective and more energy-efficient way. Let's not forget also that cement causes a lot of CO2 emissions. Nowadays, houses can be built using alternative methods that reduce site waste by 90% and that don't use cement. And these same alternative houses are often 60% more energy-efficient when they're built. So again, this is another subject that we will explore 
on future episodes of Your Children's Legacy Podcasts. If you are in the market for building a house and you're self-building, you could look at, for example, the structured insulated panel option or modular option. So we'll have experts on the show on future podcasts to talk to us about that. Area number nine is using your feet or riding a bike. It's no secret that the number one form of sustainable transportation is the bicycle, the type that you pedal, of course, but we are now seeing an influx of bikes that are electric so that people who uh, don't have the bodily wellness to cycle themselves can be assisted with electric bikes. Again, something we'll study on future episodes. In some cities around the world, it would be actually much quicker for you to ride on your bike to get there than trying to use a car bus or train and if you are in an area of the uk where it's possible for you to walk to work as opposed to taking a taxi or the tube or a train then why not walk to work if you can do so action area number 10 is planting trees now forests are important both for the microclimate in individual regions and for the global climate as a whole trees feed on co2 and convert the climate-damaging gas into oxygen, which is vital for our survival. There's a research team at ETH Zurich, you might want to Google this, by the way, and they shared some astounding facts and figures. Amongst them, two-thirds of man-made CO2 emissions could be removed from our atmosphere if we were to reforest 900 million hectares of forest worldwide. Forest restoration is broadly regarded by many as the number one climate change solution. And let's not forget that eating meat contributes towards deforestation, which is why you need to look sensibly at your diet. Take some time to find lists of forest restoration organisations that you can support. And again, this is another exciting subject that we will explore in more detail on future podcasts. Action point number 11 is choosing products from companies who are doing positive things in the climate change arena. Most of, let's call them the carbon-conscious companies that are out there, will shout from the rooftops about what they are doing, how they are contributing towards addressing climate change. So, provided they can give you the evidence that are actually really doing that, why not choose to buy products and services from companies who are adopting environmentally friendly practices? Google researching makes that easier, and you will start to see directories of organisations that are proving that they are helping with this climate change challenge. And finally, for this podcast, you could talk about climate change. Action 12, talk about climate change. Now, even though there's more written about climate change than ever before, be proud to let people know that you care about this subject. This is not a subject to be ashamed of. Encourage people to watch the YouTube documentary called 2040 or David Attenborough's A Life on This Planet. Share your knowledge, encourage good habits and ask people if they are aware that climate change supports their own children's legacy this brings the first your children's legacy podcast to an end i do hope you've enjoyed this episode and it's given you some food for thought please do subscribe for future episodes and if you have enjoyed this production please do give us a positive review and share the podcast with friends and family and acquaintances that you think would benefit from listening to the your children's legacy podcast until next time you've been listening to david Lilly and the your children's legacy podcast